Hello, Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine here, popping up very quickly before this episode of What If, just to let you know that if you're enjoying this podcast, chances are you'll love Sister Title Management Today's podcast too. The Leadership Lessons podcast delves into the world of leadership and management, bringing insights, trends and advice to the ears of busy senior leaders. Previous interviewees include author Amy Gallo, British Heart Foundation CEO Charmaine Griffiths and kidnap negotiator Scott Walker. Get it wherever you usually get your podcasts. Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 4 of What If? a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. Hello, I'm Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine. For this episode of What If? I'll be running the gauntlet of public opinion and using my voice to explore a highly emotive issue. I'll be asking, what if everyone was cancelled? It is, of course, a highly topical subject following the recent sacking of GB News presenters Lawrence Fox, Dan Wotton and Calvin Robinson. Amid the furore that followed Fox's derogatory comments about political journalist Ava Evans, Fox took to social media to slam GB News as no longer the home of free speech, but rather cancel culture. But critics of cancel culture are a much broader church than those railing against political correctness gone mad. Former US President Barack Obama, for example, warned in a 2019 speech against call-out culture on social media. He remarked that people who do really good stuff have flaws, adding that people who you are fighting may love their kids and, you know, share certain things with you. Even Pope Francis has weighed in, describing cancel culture as a form of ideological colonisation, one that leaves no room for freedom of expression, and warning that it ends up cancelling all sense of identity. It's an incredibly complicated issue, one which by no means divides people straightforwardly along ideological or political lines. But where did the phrase even come from? The term in fact originated via activist movements working on behalf of people facing injustice, with cancelling used as a tool to hold powerful individuals or institutions to account and to bring about social change. The concept certainly has some not inconsiderable merit then. And surely no one could argue with the need for polite and considerate public discourse or with the danger of everyone assuming it's fine to constantly speak thoughtlessly and request forgiveness later. Or could they? As many writers, comedians and others have questioned, including John Ronson in his book So You've Been Publicly Shamed, has cancel culture gone too far? To help me unpack this contentious yet vital debate, I spoke to two people from pretty different professional backgrounds who nonetheless have both experienced being denied platforms and people calling for them to be boycotted on social media and for them to lose their jobs. Neil Morrison is Director of HR for Water Company 7 Trent, a business in an industry under fire of late for sewage leaks and accusations of excessive executive pay. He was previously Group HR Director at publisher Penguin Random House and has always been a prolific and influential speaker and writer on the HR circuit. Toby Young is founder and director of the Free Speech Union, associate editor of The Spectator and a regular contributor to the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph. His career has spanned far beyond journalism, though, with Young a prominent figure in the free schools movement and having starred in a one-man dramatisation of his book How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. 
I challenge them to answer their critics, to explain why everyone should be afforded the right to continually exercise free speech, even where we might think we hear enough from people like them, and even where we might not like what they say. Let's start by hearing about their experiences of being cancelled. What happened? What did it feel like? And did their critics have a point? Here's Neil, talking first about a collective effort to unfollow him on social media. It was something I wrote about the fact that an approach that was going around at the time in HR of, you know, disrupting it and being, uh, got to throw everything up in the air. And it was predominantly being peddled by people who hadn't actually worked in the profession for any period of time and didn't really know, in my view, what they were talking about. And I wrote a piece around this specifically highlighting a couple of things that have been said, but not people. I didn't call out names, I ne- never do. And just talking about, you know, the vast majority of practitioners' experience is entirely different to this. And it feels really deeply unhelpful when other people are going out basically saying that HR is broken and it needs throwing up in the air and this, that and the other. And people thought it was a little bit too close to the mark on individuals. And I think that was the reason that it happened. I don't know, they didn't give me much reason, if I'm totally honest, other than we don't like you. I guess other one that springs to mind was someone writing to my CEO, not in my current organisation, in my previous one, and suggesting I should be fired for expressing a particular view on something. So I think, sadly, it happens more often. You'd hope that you get a kind of overblown reaction and I think I've seen it a lot over the last sort of 10 or 15 years you end up with a kind of pylon that then happens where you walk away from your phone and you come back and you look at it and you've got god knows how many hundreds of notifications on there there's definitely a sense of anxiety because that's not why I comment or why I write I don't do that to try and get that kind of reaction it's to try and start a conversation I guess to try and get different views and expression and opinions There's nothing more frustrating than when you write something and everyone goes, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you think, well, I I kind of wanted some different angles or opinions or thoughts on that. What's lovely, the best ones are where you go, I really like the points you made there and there, but I disagree with this and this is why, or I think this. Neil aims to provoke creative, constructive conversation that improves everyone's HR practice then, and certainly never sets out to offend or enrage but the same cannot be said of Toby, as anyone who knows his work will attest. Toby has scandalised people on a whole range of topics, from progressive eugenics to COVID vaccinations to women's breasts. So is the experience of people calling for him to be cancelled less emotionally fraught? Surprisingly not, according to his explanation of how he came to set up the Free Speech Union. The Free Speech Union is a mass membership public interest body that stands up for the speech rights of its members and campaigns for free speech more widely. I set it up in 2020, partly because I experienced being cancelled myself in 2018. Uh, I was appointed uh, to a very minor role of a new government regulator by Theresa May. The offence archaeologists went to work digging away, seeing if they could find some dirt to prove that I was an unsuitable person to be appointed to any sort of public role. And because I'd been a a fairly provocative, controversial journalist for my entire career, it didn't take them long to hit pay dirt. And I resigned after a week and apologised for some of the more sophomoric things I'd said on Twitter and elsewhere. And then the outrage mob came for me in 
every other position I held. So I ended up losing five positions in total over a sort of three-month period. And when that was happening to me, I sort of be great if there was an organization I could turn to that could give me impartial professional advice. If I apologize, will it make things better or worse? Should I sue some of the people who are saying untruthful, defamatory things about me for libel? Should I get out there and answer these requests from places like the Today program to defend myself? Could they recommend anyone who can provide some psychological counseling because it's pretty traumatic? So when the dust had settled and I'd recovered, I thought, why don't I set up the organization that I so desperately wanted when I was in the eye of a cancellation storm? When I originally thought of it, I thought of it as a sort of trade union for people who make their living by talking about writing about ideas in the broadest sense. But then I thought, why confine it to them? And over the past three and a bit years, we've managed to accumulate over 12,000 members. We now have 19 employees. We've looked after over 2,000 people, and we've won some significant legal victories. Of course, your sympathy for Toby might be limited, given, as he references here, and as he is the first to admit, he's made a career out of saying controversial things. So what does he say to those critics, and there are many, who would dismiss the free speech union as a worthy-seeming front to justify his brand as a politically incorrect thinker? Is he really championing free speech for those most voiceless, vulnerable people who need it most, or rather protecting his own highly privileged platform? I think I'd say to them that, well, first of all, you're welcome to come and look at our case data and see who the people are that the free speech union protects and 99% of them are not people who have deliberately set out to provoke or offend they are people who just found themselves in trouble for speaking their minds for saying what they think and for expressing views which um, in many cases they aren't aware have become taboo Sometimes they are aware that their views are unfashionable and that some people will find them offensive, but they want to stand up for those particular things. Maybe my motives aren't as pure as they might be, who knows? But I think if the price we pay to defend freedom of speech is that some people get away with saying silly, provocative, irritating things, then that's very much a price worth paying. But entreating people to grow thicker skins against silly, provocative comments becomes problematic, perhaps, in relation to highly emotive subjects. Race, for example, where triggering content can't be unseen or necessarily just overlooked or forgotten. So do we need some basic rules of engagement with some topics or language always off limits and a greater willingness on the parts of those making statements on highly charged issues to educate themselves first? After all, if you come from a position of privilege, as Neil and Toby undoubtedly do, it is surely impossible to truly understand the experiences of those from more diverse backgrounds and how certain comments might land, even where, like Neil, you are highly mindful of such experiences and the need to proceed in a considerate, constructive way. Here's Neil. I think I'd probably separate out opinions that are expressed with a positive intent, even if people disagree with them, and statements that are made to cause hurt or to inflame people, which I, I think are two very different things. 
And I think where that's done, that, that is problematic. And, you know, that should be avoided at all costs. But somehow, you know, we have to take a little bit of personal responsibility for our reactions to things as well. There's a kind of responsibility on the individual to say, I'm not going to go into fora where I might hear things that I fundamentally find triggering versus, you know, I'm going to throw myself into everything and then everybody needs to take into account the things that I find difficult and change what they do. There is definitely responsibility on the individual not to say something if you don't really know what you're talking about or to pose it as a question. I think it's fair to do or to go and look it up yourself. But at the same time, people will get stuff wrong about all sorts of things. And so we should look at their intent and really understand, you know, was it a genuine mistake? And if so, I would always go with forgiveness first. Toby, perhaps unsurprisingly, thinks the line is even more ambiguous than this, even more knotty than a simple matter of intent. Anytime you think you've come up with a rule which everyone can agree to, you quickly realise it's more complicated than this, he says. It's very difficult to come up with a rule whereby you defend the free speech of kind of sensible people who are always acting in good faith and always motivated by a kind of public-spirited conscientiousness and exclude those others. I don't think you can. It's just very, very difficult. We have a statement of values at the Free Speech Union and we reserve the right not to defend people who breach our statement of values. And when thinking about that, I thought about that issue. Are we only going to defend people who treat their opponents in arguments in a respectful, well-mannered way? But I quickly found that that was quite difficult because that would mean, you know, there are some clearly offensive comedians who may in some cases be motivated by spite, but who are nevertheless, you know, very funny and whose right to freedom of expression, I think we'd want to defend. So in the end, I think where we draw the line is we'll defend people's free speech unless they use their free speech to try and silence others, to try and bully or intimidate others into silence. We are, of course, talking here about the concept of free speech in its widest sense, as it applies right across all facets of public life. But how does the debate change in relation to the workplace? Taking us right back to the recent case of Lawrence Fox, even Toby acknowledges that you need a slightly different approach where employment is concerned. Evidently, employers are entitled to go beyond the law in restricting what people can say in the workplace. It's reasonable for them to say, we're not just going to prohibit anything unlawful, we're going to go beyond that and in some cases prohibit what would be lawful speech outside the workplace. And when you accept a job with us and sign this particular contract, you are relinquishing the absolute right to free speech. There's a kind of freedom of association argument where there has to be a negotiation between the right to free speech and the right to freedom of association. And I think in Lawrence Fox's case, he probably did breach an internal workplace speech code by saying what he did about Ava Evans. So I don't think it's particularly unreasonable for GB News to fire him. I don't know if he should suffer negative repercussions beyond that. He didn't say anything unlawful. So I don't think you know he should have a non-crime hate incident recorded against his name. I don't think he should necessarily lose other employment. Where it would be trickier is if Lawrence Fox had said that 
on another broadcaster whilst also being an employee of GB News or if GB News were punishing him for something he'd said on Twitter outside the workplace. That's when it gets more difficult. And I think often something we come across are workplaces via their social media policies trying to extend their reach into people's private lives and police what are self-evidently private conversations. Neil, it probably goes without saying, agrees with employers and HR's vital role in creating safe, respectful working environments where there are very clear consequences for offensive behaviour. But it's also hugely incumbent on HR to strike a balance between this and allowing healthy debate to flourish, he says. Outlaw any discussion of divisive non-work topics like politics, say, and there will quickly be a chilling effect on creativity and constructive challenge, he says, even in relation to squarely work-related matters. So I think the HR profession has got a hugely pivotal role in work to create an environment where conversations can be had, rather than taking a strong policy position to start with and just kind of asserting that and assuming that everybody will conform with it, I think that's really quite problematic. And you've got to include absolutely everyone and get their opinions, get their thoughts and get their discourse. And and as HR professionals, to create really healthy cultures, we're going to have to do that. And we're going to have to find a happy medium that we can get to within our organisations. Toby agrees with Neil that this takes nuance on HR's part and a willingness to genuinely understand whether someone is coming from a place of malice or of wanting to learn, as well as HR being crystal clear about where the limits lie. He cites a recent tribunal as an example of one HR department regrettably falling short on both these counts. We had one case, for instance, a recent case, an employee of a large high street bank was asked for the first time to undergo diversity training. He was a senior manager. Uh, This was a couple of years ago. He was asked to do this. And the first thing the trainer said was, treat this as a safe space. Whatever you say will stay in the room. Don't be inhibited. Don't be shy. No question is stupid. The usual stuff. And he took that at face value. They were discussing what words are and aren't appropriate to use in the workplace. And he said, what if one of the black people I'm managing calls one of his black colleagues the N-word? And he used the N-word when he posed the question. He wasn't trying to be provocative. He was just asking a question in an uninhibited way, as he'd been encouraged to do. The trainer didn't answer the question, but told him she was very shocked that he'd used the word. And at the end of the session, she reported him to the company she worked for. And they in turn reported him to the bank. The bank suspended him, investigated him and eventually sacked him for gross misconduct. And we helped him take the bank to the employment tribunal. And not only did they decide that he'd been unfairly dismissed, they also decided he'd been discriminated against because he had a disability, which meant he found it harder than others to understand you know, what was and wasn't inappropriate language to use in a session like that. So the challenge for HR is to intelligently exact this tricky balance between keeping employees safe from harm and offence, but also feeling psychologically safe enough to engage in robust, hopefully enlightening debate. To do this, HR practitioners must model the right kinds of behaviours themselves, says Neil. Something the profession has at times struggled with, understandably perhaps given its safeguarding remit. In fact, this is a topic that cuts right to the heart of that perennial discussion around whether the people profession does enough to welcome in a wide array of demographics, not just when it comes to race, gender and sexuality, but political affiliation too. Here's Neil. 
I think what you probably do find is that you predominantly have people towards the centre, centre-left in terms of their social views on society. And your workforce is not of the same pool. So they're a more disparate group. And so you run the risk of going down a set of directions, policies, processes, procedures, stances, whatever you want to call them, that reflect your opinions, not the workforce. And that's where I think it becomes problematic because you get that disconnect. But I think that the biggest challenge is the group think that comes from any situation where you get people that sit in a similar pool of views and how we challenge ourselves on that. I think it's incredibly worrying that we're not getting the variety of voices coming into a dialogue on many, many topics. And if I take a maybe a less contentious one, in a way, but hugely contentious at the time was the post-pandemic return to the workplace. And at that time, you know, the very dominant view was if you're taking people back into the workplace, you don't trust them. You're a dinosaur. You're Neanderthals. I was very, very vocal that we were taking people back into our organisation and the reasons why, and that was specific to our organisation. I can't tell you the number of people that got in contact with me saying, thank God somebody's saying this because I'm coming under loads of pressure because I'm being told everybody else is doing this because those are the only dominant voices. It's small, if you like, silly example, but it is an example where having different voices is good, is positive, is progressive, and it allows people to come to different conclusions in their workplaces and in their organisations. But going back to cancel culture's roots as a tool for holding powerful institutions to account, is it different where it's an organisation rather than a person being boycotted? Neil has first-hand experience of being denied a platform as a result of controversy surrounding his employer and the wider utilities sector. Fair enough, you might think. But in fact, it's hard to find any organisation that hasn't been criticised for something. So where do we draw the line? The first thing I should say is I'm hugely proud of the work that Seven Trent does day in, day out. And I think the kind of current debate that's going on about the sector is massively ill-informed. But that doesn't mean there's not a debate to be had, but it's one that should be had with data, evidence and balance and opinion. For the first time, I think, in my career... I've actually had someone contact me and say, we're going to pull you from speaking on this particular podcast. It's nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with your organisation. It's to do with the industry. We don't think it would be good perception, which I find quite remarkable because, you know, little do we know what's going on in lots of organisations. The question is, have you got something to say about the topic, not, not where do you work and what do you do? I mean, I think there's a difference if you're speaking on a topic that your organisation is doing something that is directly against. So if it was about how do we improve health within society and you asked a tobacco company coming to come speak about it, I do think that might be problematic because there's a conflict between what they're doing and the topic of debate. But just because a company is liked or isn't liked or we have a view around what they do or don't do, I really don't think that should be a reason why they shouldn't be able to speak about other things that they're doing in their organisation that might be really positive. So where are we at, societally, in protecting this complex set of rights? How near are we to a situation where everyone gets cancelled? 
And why would this be such an undesirable, dystopian world? First, Neil, pointing out that some cancel culture activists could be unwittingly opening the door to those very tyrannical, repressive regimes they would be the first to denounce. I was listening to Salman Rushdie on the radio a few years ago. And, you know, if, if there is an expert in this space, I think Salman probably could qualify as it. And he made the point that the moment you ban one thing, you allow the possibility for everything to be banned. And that really stuck with me. I think the biggest threat is that taken on board by governments and by state and that we start to see, you know, what you see in some of the more authoritarian regimes around the world where you know different opinions aren't allowed and it's almost everything that those people who have very strong opinions are against but i think that the kind of right wrong good bad has been weaponized at the moment by people with influence whether it's politicians whether it's the media and whether it's campaigners and they use it as a force to try and get the power and the change that they want And whilst it's still an effective force with the masses, it's not going to go away. And so we need kind of people to start asking themselves, what if there was a different side to this? I wonder if I looked at this from another perspective, only at that point will we start to move away because it will lose its power in the dynamics of the people that are using it, as I say, to get what they want. And here, with the last word on the matter, he'll like that, is Toby. The chief danger posed by cancel culture is that it has a really chilling effect on free speech, which is to say people become very inhibited and frightened. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because freedom of speech is the lifeblood of democracy. Unless we can openly discuss issues like where the boundary should be when it comes to the conflict between trans rights and women's rights, if we can't openly discuss that issue in the public square because one side is terrified that if they speak their minds, they'll be cancelled, that's going to remain an unresolved conflict. It's going to become a, a kind of festering sore. As George Orwell said, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. As Voltaire said, or it was, it was allegedly Voltaire, but it's quite hard to attribute precisely. I disagree profoundly with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Defending free speech often means defending the right of people to say things which you don't agree with and which you find difficult and challenging. But that's what it means. You have been listening to the What If podcast, brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website. Hi there, Katie Jacobs here, co-host of What If. If you're enjoying our podcast, I'd love to let you know about another one I think might be up your street. In the Responsible Business Leading the Way podcast, I and my co-host, Professor Veronica Hope-Haley from the University of Bristol Business School, explore the role of business in society and what responsible leadership looks like in a world that continues to lurch from crisis to crisis. To do so, we're joined by inspirational and insightful leaders from organisations including Microsoft, Tate & Lyle and the Bank of England. This limited series is produced by the University of Bristol Business School, working with the CIPD. To listen... Just search Responsible Business Leading the Way wherever you get your podcasts.